Well, good morning. We're going to do things a little differently today. I get to preach from the floor. Um, I'm not going to lie. I actually prefer preaching from the floor because I, 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 I don't, there's no risk of falling through that. Um, but I enjoy preaching through the floor because I move around quite a bit. Um, if in case you didn't hear, uh, Nathaniel read out of Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 14. So go ahead and open or load your Bible as you do that. My name is Marco. I serve as a preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Last week, uh, you were joined by Pastor Randy Caulfield from River Church in Brownsville. Uh, yeah, and he did a great job uh, taking care of y'all. I'm, uh, I know that y'all received him well. And, uh, and so that was great just to finally get him here to Storehouse McAllen. Uh, so that was really cool. Uh, my wife and I were in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We got the privilege of assessing um, church planters and their wives uh, through the church planting network that our church is a part of, Acts 29. And so that was fun and an experience. Nevertheless, you were missed. I'm glad that we are home. And uh, with that being said, if you're new, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to take you out to lunch or dinner. So fill out a connect card. They should be on the chairs. Fill one out. Drop it in the, on the connection desk that's in the back, and one of us will get back with you within 24 hours. In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, let us hook you up with one. That is our gift to you. Or if you know someone that would benefit from having, um, well, all people would benefit from having God's Word. So if you know someone who doesn't have God's Word, hook them up. Take one, take two. Uh, Hook them up with the gift of God's Word. All that being said, I just want to dig into our time because I think we have a lot to unpack. Originally this morning, we were going to be walking through verses 11 through 21, and I cut that down to 11 and 14 because uh, we still have a lot to work through. So let me begin our time by asking you a question. All right. Now, there's going to be several times today where we're going to be walking through a lot of Scripture. So uh, have those fingers ready to flip those pages. Um, So let me start off by asking you a question. When was the last time you experienced a very, very cringeworthy experience? Just think about it. Okay. Think, not say. Don't want to know. Don't want your details. Right? Think about it. The last time you experienced a cringe-worthy moment. If you find yourself, from your feedback, sorely embarrassed, I'm pretty sure it was terrible. This could be where maybe as a parent, You told your kids one thing, and you did something completely opposite of that. And then when you were caught in the moment, you tried justifying it under the authority of being a parent. Maybe you told your friends at school or at work that you're a Christian, that you love Jesus. And then they see you at lunch or on another different occasion. They see that your conduct doesn't match your confession. Or maybe you've had those private moments where you confess that Jesus is Lord, but then out in public, your life demonstrates something completely different. And it does so because you're afraid of what people are going to think and what people are going to say. Right? Those are the kinds of cringe moments that make you go cringe. 
And they're cringeworthy because, here's why, they're cringeworthy because you got caught. That's why they're so cringe, because you got caught and you have nothing to say. I mean, what could you say? All of a sudden, your thoughts are scrambling, sweat is dripping from your brow, and anything other than admission that you're a hypocrite will not suffice. I want you to know this morning that you are in good company, both in the Apostle Peter and in the grace of God. This morning, we're going to talk about when our confession doesn't line up with our conduct. Before we dive into our text, let me give you a quick reminder and overview of our time in Galatians. So I'm going to let you sit in that cringeworthy moment for a little bit longer. Let me give you a quick overview of our time in Galatians in case you've missed out. The first thing is that this letter written to the Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul, and, it's not, and he's not writing to one single church. He's writing to several churches in the region of Galatia. It would be as though he would write a letter to the valley, not necessarily McAllen. So he's writing to a collective of churches, and this letter is a very, very passionate letter from the Apostle Paul. If you are kind of somewhat of a theology nerd, you would know that the book of Romans and the book of Galatians are two of his most intense letters. And some would say, or some would argue that Romans is kind of like offense while Galatians is like defense. Okay. So that gives you kind of an idea of what's going on. But the reason Galatians is so passionate is because the sufficiency of the gospel is under attack. See, two things are happening in this letter. The first is that people are preaching a false gospel. They are telling the Galatian Christians that in order to be truly saved, in order to be truly holy and actually belong to Jesus, they need to be saved by faith and the works of the law. More specifically, the Mosaic law, more specifically, circumcision. The second thing that's happening is that these false teachers, as they try to persuade the Galatians of this false gospel, are also accusing and questioning the authority and apostleship of Paul. And so when we opened up Galatians a couple of weeks ago, you noticed the phrase was that Paul started and then stayed in the gospel. That's how he opens up Galatians 1. He starts in the gospel and he stays in the gospel. And as he works his way into chapter 2, he is opening with the work of Jesus for him. He is uh, talking about the authenticity of his calling, the seriousness of the gospel. He provides us with his own personal testimony of how Jesus came to save him. And finally, last week, as you examined with Pastor Randy, we see how Paul is making this argument that Jesus is saving Gentile Christians like his friend and son in the faith, Titus. Today, it is a continuation of Paul's argument. It is a continuation of his defense in his apostleship, only it involves a different kind of encounter, more like a confrontation. And it's a confrontation with the Apostle Peter. In today's text, we're going to see Paul confront Peter 
because Peter's confession does not match his conduct. And when confession is compromised, there are consequences. When your confession is compromised, there are consequences. And we're going to examine those consequences. And so as we look to God's word, here's what I want you to know. Here's your main idea. Confession is sustained by grace. Conduct is sanctified through accountability. Confession is sustained by grace. Unmerited favor from God towards sinners. Confession is sustained by grace. Conduct is sanctified through accountability. Let me pray, and then we'll dig into our time. Also, those of you on the second floor of the production, if you could lower those lights, they're really intense on my face. Anyway, here we go. Lord, it is solely by your grace that we are saved. It is solely by your grace that we are sustained. May we remember your grace this morning. Those who know Jesus, Lord, I pray that their hearts would be strengthened and that their love for you may abound. Lord, those who do not know Jesus, I pray that their hearts would be softened so that they would receive your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have three primary areas of focus in our time this morning, all having to do or all having been in the context of a public setting. That's really important. We're in a public setting. And so here are the three areas of focus, right? We're going to look at confrontation, compromise, consequence. Confrontation, compromise, and then consequence. Okay, so as you're writing your notes down, there you go. Later in our time, we're going to look at confession and conduct through grace and accountability. We'll tackle that later. We're going to focus on these three. So let's begin with public confrontation. As mentioned earlier, this text shows a confrontation between Peter and Paul, and it is one of the most cringe-worthy moments in the New Testament. And so what you and I are going to do is we're going to walk through it very slowly, unpacking the cringe, and then sitting in that cringe together. It's going to be awkward. I love it. Okay, here we go, right? We're going to look plainly at what's happening because that's what's important. You can't just say, oh, this is cringe and then move on. We got to look at what is happening. So beginning in verse 11, here's what Paul writes. But when Cephas came to Antioch, There's already a lot in that, and you're like, there's only four words, right? Antioch is a city that is incredibly important. So we need to talk a little bit about Antioch because it's going to provide us with um, the setting, and it's going to provide us with some significance. When it comes to, to Antioch, it was a very significant city in the Roman Empire, and it was a strategic city for the church because in Antioch is where people were being discipled and developed and deployed. In Antioch is when those who followed Jesus were first came to be known as Christians. 
Antioch was completely different than Jerusalem. Antioch is north of Jerusalem, so it was completely different than Jerusalem. While Jewish Christians lived in Antioch, the population of people in Antioch were mainly Gentile. That is, people who did not have a Jewish background or upbringing. Rather, their background came from that of pagan beliefs and customs. Additionally, when you consider what is going on in Antioch, the relationship between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians is very fragile. Okay? Jewish Christians grew up with the Torah and the Mosaic Law, held to the customs and standards of the Old Testament, whereas Gentile Christians never even read a Bible. And though Gentiles were now part of the covenant family through faith in Christ, their relationship wasn't exactly all good. And I want you to think about that just practically speaking. Because I think sometimes we read Scripture and we learn about Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and we're like, yeah, cool, they're saved by faith in Jesus, they're good to go. But think about the Jewish Christians who were raised with the Torah. Think about the Jewish Christians who held to all of the customs and all of the different rituals and come from this very heavy, using language in our day, this very heavy church background. And now you have Gentile Christians who are coming, or Gentile people who are coming to faith in Christ Jesus. They don't know any of that. They've never experienced any of that. So it's not like they're all cool there is still some self-righteousness to get rid of from the Jewish Christians, and there's some learning to be done with the Gentile Christians. And so in order to best understand how this kind of came to be, we need to rewind to Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter receives a vision from the Lord to go and be the first of the apostles to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm going to read through it just so you get a little bit of context. This is Acts chapter 10, verses 13 to 20. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He's talking about food restrictions. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to circle this. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter receives this vision from Jesus. Jesus is telling him, hey, 
Don't worry about the dietary restrictions. I want you to go and preach to the Gentiles, though who, those who don't know Jesus, who aren't necessarily, who, who don't know scripture. I want you to go and preach to them. And so Peter gets called by this dude named Cornelius, and Cornelius sends three people, and these three men show up to Peter's house, and they're essentially ringing the doorbell saying, hey, Peter, are you home? We want to we talk to you. And in Acts 10, Peter goes with these men and preaches the gospel at Cornelius' house to a room full of people who do not know Jesus, a room full of Gentiles, and the Spirit descends upon these people, and they come to faith in Christ Jesus. And as he does this, in Acts 11, Peter then goes back to Jerusalem to tell the Jerusalem council, hey, I got this vision from God, from Jesus, to go and preach the gospel to Gentiles. I did. God granted them repentance. They are now Christians, and they are following Jesus. And in Acts 11, we see the Jerusalem council get excited and celebrate at what God is doing. So Antioch was kind of a big deal. It was the epicenter of discipleship and, and deployment. When Paul writes that this is occurring in the city of Antioch, this confrontation, Paul isn't just writing this because he wants to show you his travel diary. He is telling you about Antioch because it has great significance, both to what God is doing and to the fragility of their relationships, the Jewish and the Gentile Christians. So that's just verse 11, that little part of verse 11. Now let's go to verse 12, the second part, right? He, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. So here is an incident or something is about to happen in Antioch. What is going on? Peter is eating with the Gentiles. Now, I want you to kind of imagine what the Gentile Christians were thinking or feeling as they heard that the apostle Peter was coming into town. What do you think they were thinking about? Like, this is Peter, yo. Like, this dude walked on water for three steps, which is more than any of us have ever done. Right? Like, this is Peter. Like, he is, like, one of the graduates of Jesus school. Like, he literally walked with Jesus. Like, some of you nerds, right, who like, like, John MacArthur would be like that. See you smirking, right? Think about what they would be experiencing as they heard that, man, one of the apostolic giants of the faith, one of the fathers of the faith, one of the, the men that Jesus selected, as Ephesians 2 says, to establish the foundation of the church, he is coming to our city and our church. These Gentiles were probably nervous, with a lot of different questions. They were excited probably. They're really curious because there's still people who may know of Peter but don't know Jesus. And so they're curious to see what's going to go down. And in verse 12, we see what Peter does with them. What does he do? He eats with them. 
Like, this is a big occasion. Like, Peter is sitting down at the table, probably having fried bacon for the very first time, and he's like, this is legit, yo. Like, if Antioch was the valley, we'd be hooking him up with, like, tacos al pastor, and be like, give me more. Like, I want some of this. Like, it is a big deal. It's a big deal because sitting at the table with these Gentile Christians and eating with them, Peter was showing them, one, that God shows no partiality, that the wall of division between Jew and Gentile has been dismantled by faith in Christ Jesus. Secondly, by him eating with them, it's a demonstration of his love for them and respect. Like being down here, growing up down here, like have you ever been to someone's house where everybody's like eating at the table and then you get up? and you say you gotta go, that's like the eighth deadliest sin. You don't do that. You don't just eat and then bounce. That's incredibly disrespectful, right? Or if you're sitting at the table with your family, and let's say you wanna go get something else, that's a sign of disrespect. My mom would always yell at my brothers and I, no tienes juicio. She would always say that, right? Like you have no respect. You don't get up from the table. And so when Peter is sitting down with these Gentile Christians, it's actually a really, really big deal. Not just that he's eating a BLT, not just that he's having some tacos al pastor, right? Like it's a big deal because he is showing them, hey, there's no division between you and I. In light of what Jesus has done for us, there is no division. In addition to that, man, I love you. That's why I'm going to have this meal with you. Because when you have a meal together, that's an incredibly intimate moment. Hospitality is very intimate. It's very vulnerable because they're in your home, they're in your city. And so that's what's happening in verse 12. Also in verse 12, let's go to the first part. For before certain men came from James. Here's where it gets messy. Here's where it gets messy. Paul writes that certain men came from uh, James. Who were they? We know that they were of the circumcision party. If you scroll down briefly, this is still in verse 12. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separating himself, fearing the circumcision party. That is that these men, these individuals, were of Jewish origin. They were from James. Now, that doesn't mean that the Apostle James sent them, but that they ran in the same circles as James, particularly because they were from Jerusalem. In a letter to the Gentile Christians in Acts 15, James denies sending anybody to start anything. You can read that in James, or excuse me, Acts 15:24. So here we have these men. And what we see is that Peter backs off from eating with the Gentile Christians out of fear of the Jewish Christians. Now, go back, verse 12. He says uh, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when he came, or excuse me, when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Drew back and separated himself, that is one word. And what that one word means in our language is that uh, it was a progression. That is, Peter may have seen these men come, and he was like, all right, 
I'm not going to eat as much. And as they got closer to where they were in public, he moved his plate to the center. And as they got closer to Peter, he separated himself from the table. And as they grew closer and closer, he went to another table, right? Like it was a progression that happened in this occasion. Now, with all that being said, this is where Peter and Paul enter into a public confrontation. And Paul does two things. He says in verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Think about that. It's already getting cringe, but I want you to think about that. Peter received revelation from Jesus to go and preach to the Gentiles. Paul, the former I tried to be almost perfect Jew who persecuted and killed Christians is the one who is confronting Peter, the one who received revelation from Jesus, walked with Jesus, and was personally restored by Jesus. The one Jesus says, I will build my church upon you. That is the one who is confronted by Paul. And I want you to notice in this text, Paul didn't beat around the bush. He went directly to Peter. Paul didn't gossip like the American church loves to do. Paul didn't see what was going on with Peter and then he pulled his boys aside and like talked about them and made an example privately out of Peter and then went about acting as if he's cool with Peter. Paul didn't post it on social media as some sort of a sub-post to call out Christians or to call out that one person that you're too afraid to talk to. Paul didn't do that. Paul didn't use Christianese. He didn't use funny terms like, bless his heart. Oh, that's just Peter. <laughs> Paul went directly to Peter. He didn't stop fellowshipping with him. In other words, Paul wasn't so offended by what Peter did that he broke fellowship with Peter but never told him about it. You know, just like we do. Paul went directly to Peter and confronted Peter to his face. As I was thinking about this text, I thought about arguments that some Christians have used to kind of defend Peter here. One of those comes from 1 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul tells the Corinthian church, hey, don't be a stumbling block. And so some Christians will use that here. Well, you know, as Peter saw those Jewish people, maybe he just didn't want to be a stumbling block. You know, they've never had bacon. Peter shouldn't have to impose them with bacon. First, nada que ver, okay? Second, what Peter did was not out of consideration, but fear. Let's, let's just make it clear, because when we hear scenarios like this, man, we start bouncing with excuses. Well, I got these other scenarios that you've never been a part of. Wasn't asking. What Peter did was not out of consideration, but fear. Peter was not acting out of care for those men. Peter was going against both conscience and revelation. Sit in that for a little bit. 
Because I've heard people try to use 1 Corinthians 8. Well, he wasn't trying to be a stumbling block. No, he went against conscience and revelation. So the first thing Paul does is that he opposes him to his face. The second thing Paul does is that he confronts him publicly. More cringe. Paul addresses Peter publicly for a couple of reasons, right? The first is that this wasn't simply a Matthew 18 moment. Hey, go to your brother, talk to him, right? And if he stops sinning, you're good. If he doesn't, take two, three witnesses. If he doesn't, bring it before the church. It wasn't that kind of a moment. It wasn't that kind of a moment because, number one, or on one hand, Peter knew better. He received revelation from Jesus three times, apparently, And on the other hand, what was at stake here is the unity of the church. Like this wasn't just about him. In fact, let me back up. This was not about him eating bacon. That wasn't the point. The point is that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, their relationship was fragile. And what Peter is doing could cause disunity in the church. All of the work that is being done right now for the gospel, in the gospel, and through the gospel is at stake. That's why Paul confronts him publicly. Because check it, if Paul had pulled Peter aside privately, Peter would have agreed with Paul theologically. Hey man, you probably shouldn't be doing it right. Yep, I agree. I know. I remember when Jesus said that in Matthew. I was there. Like, Peter would not have disagreed with Paul. But in directing him publicly, Peter doesn't have an excuse. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy, a younger pastor. He says this. This is 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder. He's talking about like leadership in the church. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's a lot of people. As for those, still talking about church leadership, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. That's scary, (laughs) right? Go to verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all. He confronts them publicly. Peter knew better because of the revelation that God had given him. And because the unity of the church was at stake. This wasn't just a private matter. This was a matter that could have tremendous ripple effect in the church. Well, what does that mean for you and I? Paul doesn't waste any time in going to Peter. Do you waste time? The gospel was at stake in this scenario. Do you waste time doing everything Paul didn't do? Gossiping, posting on social media, using Christianese to justify why you won't talk to them? The question could be, well, how do you confront someone you love? As Christians, we know 
We go to them gently. We try to restore them gently. We address what's going on. But that's not necessarily what's happening here. Here's a better question. Do you love one another enough to confront one another with your sin? Well, it's a different thing, isn't it? Because if I ask, well, how do you comfort or how do you confront someone in love? You'll give me all the theological clarity in the world. That's what Peter would have done to Paul in private. But if I ask, do you love one another enough? Now, I'm not asking that abstractly. I'm asking Storehouse McCallan. Do you love one another enough to confront one another with your sin? Not your preference, but sin. Is love for one another, is love for your brother and sister as serious as you say it is? Let's go deeper. Is your love for the gospel as serious as you say it is? It's just a lot of soaking and cringe moments, man. Is your love for the gospel as serious as you say it is? Peter was given revelation from the Lord Jesus. He was one of the ones that was leading from the front. In this scenario, in him sitting with the Gentiles, he was originally preaching that there is no wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. For all who come to faith in Christ Jesus through grace alone, by faith alone, will be saved. This public confrontation wasn't an issue of preference or food restriction. This was a gospel issue. That's why it was done so publicly. Secondly, we looked at public confrontation. Now let's look to public compromise. Peter's actions preached a sermon about Jesus that day. His actions preached a sermon about Jesus. And his actions compromised the message or the truth of the gospel. How? He acted hypocritically. So let's sit even further in the cringe and let's look at Peter's hypocrisy. Verse 14. But when I saw, this is Paul, he's talking about Peter and the guys he's with, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. We're going to break that down into three things. Conduct, not in step, forgetfulness. That first part of verse 14, that whole phrase, is actually one word in the original language. Now normally I don't like say things in Greek because I don't speak Greek, right? But sometimes I do because you'll catch the English word, okay? That one word for that phrase is orthopedikos, where we get the word orthopedic from. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Let's have that on the side. First thing Paul addresses is the conduct you see, Paul grills Peter because his conduct is inconsistent with his confession. 
See, Peter knows, Peter knows that what you believe shapes how you live. But this wasn't just a matter of talking about it in private. In public, Peter could not back off. He had to do something in public. In verse 11, Paul writes that Peter stood condemned. What does he mean by condemned? He has no excuse. He has no way out. He has no kind of creative answer that he can come up with to defend himself against what he is doing before Paul, these other Jewish people, and the Gentiles who are at the table and watching what is going on. Remember at the beginning, we talked about these cringeworthy examples. The reason they're so cringe is because we get caught. That's why Peter stood condemned. Secondly, Paul talks about him not being in step with the truth of the gospel. We looked at that, that, that whole little word where we get the word orthopedic from. This means that Peter's conduct was not straight, that it was unaligned, that it was off trail. What does an orthodontist do? It makes your teeth straight. When your tires, your wheels are unaligned, you got to go get an alignment to make them straight. Right? When you go to the foot doctor, what does he do? He hooks you up so that you get walk straight. How many times will Peter be this guy? How many times will Peter be this guy where his conduct, his eyes are off of Jesus again. You know, Peter, the one who, while walking on water, he takes his eyes off of Jesus, focuses on the storm, and starts drowning. Remember, Peter, the guy who told Jesus that he will go to war for Jesus, and only a couple of moments later, uh, completely denied knowing Jesus in public and to Jesus' face. Luke says that they locked eyes on that third one. Oh, not enough? What about Peter, the one who is restored before Jesus and the rest of the disciples by Jesus after denying Jesus? And then he's walking with Jesus along the beach, takes his eyes off of Jesus after just being restored, looks over to John and says, well, what about John? And Jesus says, don't worry about him, follow me. Not enough? Peter, the one who receives revelation from Jesus in Acts 10. And how many times did Jesus need to tell him to go preach to the, to the Gentiles? Three times. And that was before he was still like pondering. How many times is Peter going to be this guy? You see, by Peter being out of step with the truth of the gospel by him backing off from eating with the Gentiles. He preached a sermon that day. He preached a sermon that said that these Gentile Christians are actually second-class Christians. Now, you and I might go back and forth, Jewish and Gentile, like, yeah, does that apply to me? Yeah, because, man, the church is one of the most judgmental people at times. We're in our self-righteousness. 
we consider perhaps those who come to faith in Jesus who don't have a church background as lesser than because they don't get the traditions. They don't get the rituals. They haven't been well-versed in Christianese. When we back off and act self-righteously toward brothers and sisters, particularly those who are new in the faith, we preach a sermon saying that they are second-class Christians. We preach a sermon that says Jesus is not enough. That's what Peter preached that day. Peter preached that, yeah, cool, you kind of know Jesus, but you got to submit back to the Mosaic law. Peter preached a sermon that said the fear of man is weightier than the revelation of Jesus. Peter preached a sermon just like the one you did this week that says fear of man is weightier than the grace of Jesus for you. This wasn't about bacon. Each time Peter goes out of line, each time Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, each time Peter forgets the truth of the gospel. Peter forfeits God's grace for him. How many times have you forgotten the gospel this week? How many times did you go off the trail this week? How many times did you take your focus off of Jesus like Peter this morning? When we compromise the gospel, we undermine the gospel. And when we undermine the gospel, we are preaching a sermon that says the gospel is not enough. Let's even go sit more in that cringe. Let's look at the consequences of Peter's hypocrisy. Church, we need to sit in this for a little bit longer. <laughs> hypocrisy, this is what I want you to sit in right now. Hypocrisy is contagious. Sit in that for a little bit. Hypocrisy is contagious. Let's look at verse 13. Actually, let's go back to the end of verse 12. But when they, those are the, the Jewish individuals, when they came Peter drew back, separated himself, so he progressively started separating himself, fearing the circumcision party. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
Paul writes, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter. Hypocrisy is contagious. Do you know what a hypocrite is? It's where we get the word actor from or play actor. A hypocrite is play acting, someone who wears a mask, displays one version of themselves on a stage, and then they take off the mask and they act and are a completely different person off stage. That's what a hypocrite is. That's who Peter was in this moment. And in his hypocrisy, those that were with him, maybe they were other young Jewish dudes he was discipling. They'd never been to Antioch. They wanted to see what was going on. They followed Peter in his hypocrisy. Now, what is it that God says through Paul to Titus about hypocrites? This is Titus 1, 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Dude, that's weighty. I, I don't know, I feel it. But it didn't just stop with the people that were with Peter. It was also Barnabas. Paul writes, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, his nickname is the encourager. Barnabas is the guy who recruited Paul and brought him to Antioch so that they can go and train Christians and plant churches. Barnabas is the one who defended Paul to the Jerusalem council saying, no, he really does know Jesus now. He's like with us. He's on our team. Even strong leaders can be led astray by the hypocrisy of others. So his consequences of his hypocrisy is, one, he leads people astray. Two, well, we talked about what this was ultimately about. It was church unity in Antioch. As mentioned, this, this wasn't an issue about preference, but it was an issue of the gospel, that the relationship between the Jewish and Gentile Christians was fragile and it was just starting out. If this had played itself out even worse, it could have determined whether or not there would be division in the early church. Like the role of the apostles, according to Ephesians 2, was to establish the foundation of the early church. If this had gone south, things would have been really different because these are two apostolic giants about to go at it. Church unity, the gospel itself, the saving work of Jesus, Jesus who saves sinners, dying in their place for their sin, offering a grace that they cannot earn willingly. That is what was at stake. The third thing that was at stake, or the third kind of consequence, the ripple effect, so it's not just that he leads people astray, it's not just that the gospel is at stake, but there's also a community of people watching what's going on. 
Those who don't know Jesus are looking at Peter. They're looking at how he's going to respond to Paul. They're looking at Paul confronting Peter. You know what's ironic about that? This same Peter later on, this is how we know he was restored, but that same Peter later on in 1 Peter chapter 2 writes this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. At some point, we know that Peter was restored. And so when he writes that portion of his letter, he's like, trust me, I know. I was at Antioch. I was the one that got called out by Paul in front of everybody. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Hypocrisy is contagious. It leads others astray. Hypocrisy is never gospel-centered, only self-centered. I feel like after sitting in this cringe moment, you know, most of us are thinking there's absolutely no hope for me now. I keep screwing this up. So let me encourage you. I wanted to slowly walk through this cringeworthy circumstance so that we would recognize that we are just like Peter again. And just like Peter, we need two things the grace of God and a community of believers. You see, just when you think you've blown it up, when you failed and you let Jesus down again, just when you've jacked it all up again, the grace of God meets you where you are to remind you that you have not been saved by your works, your intelligence, or your own personal righteousness, but solely the grace of God for you. And as a result, listen to me, and as a result, God is most pleased in you because of Jesus' work for you. Our confession that Jesus is Lord is sustained by the grace of God for us. Today, right now, in your seats, not at lunch, right now, today, Remember grace. Remember grace. Secondly, Paul may have been hard on Peter, but Paul loved Peter. While we don't know how Peter responded or felt during this confrontation, we know that Peter was restored. We see what he writes to a bunch of dispersed Christians in 1 Peter 2. But then Paul also writes this in Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that includes Peter, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he gives a warning. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
Don't become self-righteous as you restore someone. Watch yourself. At Antioch, Paul was not trying to be victorious over Peter. I'm going to say that again. Paul was not trying to be victorious over Peter. He wasn't going for the win. That wasn't the point. Paul was holding Peter accountable to his conduct on the basis of his confession. The confession of his faith that they both held to. Why? Because when we're held accountable by one another, we are sanctified. Like, that's how much Paul loved Peter. Paul wanted Peter to be more like Jesus, to remember Jesus, to grow in Jesus, to live like Jesus, to love these individuals like Jesus. Paul's desire was for Peter to be like Jesus, not to get some W over Peter. If that's what you think, when you confront one another in our church, then you have lost sight of the truth of the gospel. If your goal is the win, if your goal is to be victorious over one another because you read some dead guy's book, I'm telling you right now, you have forgotten the truth of the gospel and your eyes are on whatever author is dead, not the Lord Jesus. Paul loved Peter so much. He wanted him to be like Jesus. Do we have that love for one another? Do we have that love for one another in Storehouse McAllen. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here it is. By this, that love, by this, all people, that is those watching, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you love the gospel so much that you're willing to protect it in the public? Everybody will say that in their own bedroom, in their prayer closet, right? <laughs> you laugh because it's true, right? I mean, if you have one, that's great. <laughs> Do you love the gospel so much that you are willing to protect it? Publicly, that might mean in community, that might mean outside. And let me just say something. Fear is a real thing. I don't want to knock it. I don't want to just glance over that, hey, Peter uh, responded this way to these men from Jerusalem out of fear. What a loser. Let's move on. No, fear is a real thing. I don't want to undermine that. I'm telling you right now, I don't want to undermine it. It's important. And what you and I need to know 
is that when we experience, when we feel fear, it's communicating something. Fear communicates that something that we value or worship is being threatened. That's what fear communicates. It's not just, it's not me. Fear communicates that something or someone that you value or that you worship is being threatened. In these verses, Peter valued man over God's grace and revelation. What was being threatened was maybe how he looked in front of his boys from Jerusalem. I don't know. What is it going to take? And we're concluding this. So there's no more note-taking. Hope you've already circled other things you need to circle. What is it going to take for us to be these kinds of brothers and sisters? What is it going to take for us to be this kind of a church? What if we stopped making excuses, stopped living at a distance from one another, and lived this beauty of grace out together? What is it going to take? It's going to take a love for God and a love for one another. So Christian, are you out of step with the gospel? Have you lost sight of the Lord Jesus? Again, today, I want you to remember grace. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you are being sanctified. Let me just beg you, lay your sin before the Lord Jesus this morning. It is His kindness that leads you to repentance. And this repentance is a grace. How else could you turn to Jesus if it wasn't by his grace? And if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. I say that all the time, but I mean it. I'm honored to have you here. So let's you and I talk. You and I are hypocrites, straight up. You and I are hypocrites. There's only one thing that is different. Repentance. That's the only thing. And repentance is not a license to sin, but a grace that is unmerited favor. It is a grace that transforms a person. And this grace is one that you cannot earn yet it is offered to you in Christ. So repent and place your trust in Jesus. He's ready to pardon any who turn to Him in faith. And it is by this grace that you can come and know Him. And it is by this grace that you can be transformed by Him. Church, our confession Jesus is Lord. Our confession is sustained by God's grace. Our conduct 
is sanctified through accountability. May we be the church God has called us to be today. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are not the people we like others to think we are. We are afraid to even admit to ourselves what lies in the depth of our souls. But we do not want to hide our true selves from you. We believe that you know us as we are, and yet you still love us. Lord, give us the courage to put our trust in your guiding power, to walk according to the Spirit by your grace. Lord, raise us out of the paralysis of guilt and fear and take us into the freedom of forgiven people. By your Spirit, help us to remember grace. And as we conclude our time, it is by your grace that we walk in step with the truth of the gospel. May the words of our mouth and meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.